go. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to this latest cost chat between friends of Practico. The participants today are the usual Andy Ellis, Managing Director of Practico, and me, Jeremy Morgan, uh, QC consultant to Practico and a retired cost barrister. But our guest today, is, who we're delighted to welcome, is George McDonald, another thoroughbred from the cost stable of cost barristers at Four News Square. It's been um, sunny, lots of blue skies. I live in Italy, even more blue skies. So blue skies thinking is definitely the order of the day. And we're assisted in that process by the Civil Justice Council, the specialists probably in the cost terms of blue skies thinking, who recently issued a consultation paper on a variety of important costs issues. And we decided to take their paper as the theme for today's chat. Uh, there are four issues which they've highlighted, and hopefully you'll find the discussion provocative enough to make you want to write in your own submission to the consultation, submissions due by the end of September. The, uh, the four topics in general terms are these, but George will explain in more detail what they're looking at. Um, cost budgeting, that old chestnut. Um, fixed recoverable costs and the uh, consequences of their being extended, guideline hourly rates, and uh, the master role's favorite topic, digital costs, uh, digital, uh, digital justice and the costs related to that. So protocols and portals and the, what, how they should deal with the extension of digital justice to other areas. So with that in mind, I will hand over now to George to talk about cost budgeting. Thanks, Jeremy. Hello, everyone. Um, so it's probably worthwhile just delving into a bit of the background to where the CJC's consultation paper seems to have stemmed from. So there are two events which I think may have driven it. The first is that Master Davidson in a um, mesothelioma case um, referred to the fact that um, neither he nor his fellow judges, including cost judges, necessarily believe that cost budgeting uh, controls costs any better than detailed assessment. Um, and then he concluded by saying, this is a very large and sensitive area, I don't really want to get into it now, but uh, those are my preliminary thoughts. Um, the next sort of turning point um, it seems to me to be um, the master of the roles' comment at the recent ACL conf conference in November, which was reported in the Law Gazette, where he remarked that he went to a budgeting hearing and was aghast at the amount of time that had been spent dealing with granular aspects of the budget. Um, and then for, for all of us who have had that joy, they will appreciate that you spend many hours um, going through very specific arguments and detailed phases, even if the budget is in the 10,000, 100,000s level, um, which might some might think um, is rather front-loading the costs. So what we then get is the CJC being tasked with looking at budgeting as a whole. And the fundamental question, there, there, there are four specific questions asked, but they, it's recognised that they're um, all part and parcel of the same thing. But the fundamental question is, should cost budgeting continue? Um, if so, should it be 
varied in any way. Um, and, and further, how does that interrelate with the extension of the fixed, co fixed recoverable cost regime that is being proposed? Um, I'll read out the specific questions as we go. I, what I'll do is I'll give some preliminary views for me on each question, and then I'll, Andy and Jeremy can tell me why I've got it all wrong, um, and, and we, can, we can thrash through that, I'm sure, hopefully a lively debate. So the first question, these can be found on CJC's website, but the first question is, very uh, vaguely put, is cost budgeting useful? Um, so I'd, I'd view it more from... Do the benefits of cost budgeting outweigh the disbenefits? Um, from my own perspective, I, I don't think that cost budgeting has really worked. Um, I think the concerns, the main concerns I have are the significant costs which are incurred at the outset of the case, um, which end up being quite a sizable proportion of the overall costs of the case as a whole. In circumstances where it happens in every case that gets to the early stages of litigation, um, when compared to the desired savings on detailed assessment, um, I, I think the upfront costs far outweigh that. Um, and I say that because, for what it's worth, I didn't think detailed assessment wasn't working. Um, I thought it was performing its job, it was controlling costs, and then you add in the new proportionality test, it gives greater control on costs as well. Um, and I don't think, and, and most detailed assessments were settled at a pretty early stage. Uh, and you'll be able to comment on this better than I can, but it was actually pretty rare for parties to, to go to a full assessment. Most would settle pre um, or service of the bill or certainly pre points of dispute. Um, and, and most would be resolved without at relatively low cost. I mean, detailed assessment, as most of the um, audience will um, hopefully agree with, is far cheaper than substantive proceedings in any event. So it's just a much more efficient process. So, so that was my main concern about budgeting. The only real benefit that I see from budgeting is certainty at an early stage um, in that the parties know their potential exposure to costs. And whilst in some cases, I obviously accept that that will be a valuable benefit, I'm concerned that in the majority of cases, it's not really a benefit at all because, you know, various factors. So, for example, for um, PI cases, um, you have quarks anyway, so it's of less significance there. When for, for other cases where you've got sophisticated insurers backing defendants or sophisticated claimants, whoever they may be, they were already well aware of the discounts that were likely to be um, obtained on assessment anyway. And if you had cost information being provided routinely, not necessarily by way of budget, but by high level figures, they would have had a broad idea of the potential cost risk anyway. And I'm not sure the additional certainty of a budget makes, would have made that much difference to them. I'm sure I'm happy for, to be told that that's wrong, um, but that's just my perspective. And because of the number of escape routes from budgeting, for example, if indemnity costs are awarded, of this good reason or significant applications falling outside the budget, variations through the proceedings, the degree of certainty that is achieved is, is, is far less than, say, um, fixed costs or anything like that, which truly do achieve certainty because the escape routes there are very narrow um, and require exceptional event. So, so overall, um, there are various other factors. I'm sure there are loads of other things could be put into the mix, but starting there, 
I'll pass over to Andy and Jeremy to, to say what their, their take is on this. Hmm. Thank you. Well, Andy, you were a bit of a fan, weren't you, of, of budgeting? Well, I just like to be, just like to keep up with the Joneses, really. And um, <laughs> and and so did so did um, Mr. Justice Boss, as he then was, um, yeah. 10, 12, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, when uh, we came up with the bright idea of budgeting in the phone hacking cases before it was pre-Jackson, when it was uh, in the uh, inherent jurisdiction of the court to do it, while there was some, probably some pilots going on at the stage. And he thought, well, what a good idea, you know, and, and that, that that was generated, you know, I think that was prompted by um, the, the the high risk that in publication cases um, there can be a huge disparity between costs and um, uh, costs and the, the uh, amount of damages at stake. So that 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 was kind of obvious. Since then, I mean, I this I think this this debate would have come up a lot earlier. Um, had the master of the roles been a fly on the wall in the um, construction industry blacklist litigation budgeting, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen as many people in a court. And that was just for the directions to set up the budgeting hearing. Um, in a standing room only, um, people in the corridors, um, so, so forth. Um, but has it worked? Does it meet the purpose? I mean, but, Taking it bit by bit, question back to George, accepting that most cases don't go to trial, with that caveat, do you think, do you find that the 1% the tariff for the costs of the budgeting process, you know, of, of, of well, that, sorry, the 1%, potentially 3% of the, uh, of the budgeting process, and at first blush, that's fairly proportionate. That doesn't seem to add significantly to the overall cost of an action such that it should be a big problem um uh, and i don't know the extent to which your experience is whether um people tend to get away with more or exclude that or find reasons to go above the percentage tariff what do you think about that aspect of it yes yeah, so I, I mean i think it costs more than one percent as in incurred costs to, to, uh, to prepare the budget you mean well and have the hearing um, yes, I think, you're, I think you're allowed to, is, is, it, is it up to another? It's two, it is, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think 1% is a fair amount to allow into parties recovery or 2% yeah. for the full whack. Um, I, I just think it costs more than that. Um, and it costs more than that, not just in the time spent by all the parties, but in court time as well. I just mm -hmm. expect that the, the number of budgeting hearings, I mean, whenever I see any of the masters on a budgeting hearing, they just look exhausted from, from doing budgeting and just totally fed up. Um, and that may just be because it's me, but, you know, they, 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 that does seem to be their, their take on it. Yeah. Um, and and I, it, it may not seem like a huge amount on each individual case. It's just the fact that it's occurring on every case um, and you need a judge, you know, the whole time. I mean, if there was a specific way, and one of the sort of proposals that we might come on to about how you could resolve it, is if it was always done on the papers, and if the uh, masters had a sort of tariff-based system, not precise tariffs, but ranges where they had guidance where to go, that, that I think would be, could well solve a lot of the problems because it would save a lot of the costs. And also it would mean that a lot more budgets were agreed if you had certain bracket so that that could be one solution which we can come on to in terms of the media cases and defamation cases 
I, I, I entirely agree with you. I mean, that, that is a, that's a circumstance where it's probably appropriate. Um, and one of the questions in the consultation is, are there any cases where it should be kept? And I think that you know, defamation is, is a prime candidate for that just because of the cost far outweigh the, mm. um, the, the damages. Um, and I'm sure we'll get an insight into that for the um, got Rooney and Vardy, I think, being handed down at, at 12 today. Indeed, um, yes. I know it's a the substantive thing, but I'm sure it'll be publicised what the costs are. So that'll be quite interesting on that. Yeah. But um, that's more just, I think, for our um, our own sort of viewing pleasure rather than uh, any any real interest. Um, mm. But the um, but, but so, so I agree that it may be that certain types of cases we can um, retain it. What I had in mind was just your run-of-the-mill case damages you know 100,000 um, and you know that's higher than you know, lots of these cases but damages 100,000 and you know it's just it, it's it's, a, it's a, a lengthy process for that even you know one million pound cases is, is quite a lot of work. Mm. Yes yeah, so, so some of that will be taken up with fixed recoverable costs being extended. Exactly. Um, and there but then that sort of increases the case doesn't it for leaving budgeting in cases which aren't any longer covered by um, fiscal, both FRCs. We'll, we'll save that the if the desire is to control proportionality through budgeting, then the great the greatest concern probably lies in the cases where fixed recoverable costs will now be extended to. Yeah. Because if you've got a case worth five million, and I know you've got all these judgments saying, well, a budget for two million for that is unreasonable, disproportionate. But you're not, you know, a case of five million is typically between corporate entities. Yeah. Who don't really? I mean, I don't want to say crass about this, but they don't need budgeting as much as yeah. individuals. You wouldn't have thought um, because they can make more informed decisions about their potential exposure anyway. Mm. Mm. What about? Don't, do you think there's anything in the argument that actually having a framework in the form of a budget um, governs? Because Jackson's intention was that it would govern solicitors' behaviour in the conduct of their own cases, as well as the recoveries into parties. Um, and I mean, he basically regarded litigation as um, a bit like construction, which was his background and yours, I think, as well. And, and he did project managing, and, and that would be in everybody's interest. What do you think about that argument in in the case which will be outside fixed recoverable costs? I I, I mean, I I certainly agree um, with you, Jeremy, and, and with um, Sarupa in that because um, it, it is important to project manage budget from a solicitor-client perspective. But I don't think the cure is to impose inter-parties recovery or inter-parties cross-budgeting because you're not really going to the heart of the problem there. What, what Another way of doing it would be to, one, either have just a sharing of cost information, but without having the formal budgeting process so the granularity of a budget and then the hearing, et cetera. You could achieve that through sharing of cost information. Or you should you should have some mechanism for properly enforcing the obligations on solicitors to provide proper estimates and proper cost information to their client, because although you know we, we would have always dealt with a lot of in, um, solicitor client disputes about estimates, and I think you even in Master Cigars, weren't you, Jeremy, back in the yeah. back in the day? So you're very familiar with these those sorts of issues. Um, but the truth is, is that you know most solicitors still I don't mean this disparagingly, but but lots of solicitors either forget to update their estimates or, um, and most are probably unfair, but you know, in lots of cases, let's just forget to do their, their update their estimates um, and haven't gone as in, in as much granular detail as perhaps they, they would need to, to properly cost out the, 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 the case going forwards. Um, 
You, you need some more effective um, constraints than master cigars in those there. Well, you would, because normally it just never goes to dispute, does it? But then mm. similarly, you know, in, in a lot of litigation, do you have CFA lights where the client is, has little interest, really, in, in the budget? Um, and that's why sharing cost information into parties may achieve that aim, but without the formalities of cost budgeting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what about um, perhaps a sort of targeted form of budgeting? I think something you mentioned when we were when we were setting up this meeting. If the if the prime suspects for um, disproportionate costs in a case are likely to be, say, disclosure and experts or something like that, you know, if you limited it to those areas um, and left the um, left the other bits to detailed assessment, that might help, or maybe it could be enough for <coughs> the cost sharing and publication to the court to be enough to move the discussion at a CMC to, look, these costs are obviously going to, uh, you know, are projected to be extremely high. You know, what can we do procedurally within the litigation to attempt to bring these into, uh, uh, to, to reduce them? Mm. Which is, a, in a way, is a slightly more intelligent <laughs> debate probably than, than yeah. expecting, you know, masters and judges to go through, you know, line by line estimates when they're not comfortable doing yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that case management, that there's always a big debate about and a number of different views taken on the interplay between case and cost management and which comes first and how do you do it. I, I, you know, for my part, I do think that case management should be used more aggressively to control costs. Yeah. The problem we have is that we have a very formulaic approach to litigation. And so we have the stages, we have, you know, the witness statements, we have disclosure, we have expert reports, and they follow a defined template, which, which they have to. I mean, you obviously have the procedural rules to govern it. So the problem is, though, is that when you've got a judge looking at a case, and are they going to follow the template directions? Or are they going to be asked to think outside the box and say, oh, well, we're going to go for this bizarre approach? The risk for them going bizarre approach is, one, it takes up way more of their time to come up with it and then implement it there's a risk of satellite litigation about whether that's a legitimate approach or not and, and yeah. how it works in the system but so so to just take disclosure for an example which is obviously quite a big area with the disclosure pilot and, and so forth at the moment you know there there has to be a way of controlling disclosure and i don't know how successful the disclosure pilot will now obviously come into force properly has been achieving that. I mean, have you had any insight, Andy, from from your when looking at the bills and the like, whether disclosure has come down as a result? Or not? I, I no, I haven't. I, I, I no, I've, I'm not saying it hasn't come down. I, I couldn't. We couldn't tell. Um, and, and like a lot of things, you know, we're as guilty as anybody. A lot of these, a lot of this information, uh, a lot of these further reforms or evolution of a uh, 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 procedure really ought to be data driven, and it isn't. Um, you know, it's very much, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the Mick Lynch of the Queen's Bench Masters comes up and says, you know, our boys aren't having this. You know? it's sort of, <laughs> and, and that's uh, that, that um, and that's how things get discussed. Um, well, you, you mentioned, George, the relationship between um, cost management and case management and the direction should be um, given with a, an eye to the costs that they would cause to be incurred, which is certainly the thinking behind um, much of Jack Jackson's recommendation. 
One of the suggestions, one of the concerns in the consultation paper is about disparities from one court to another and one judge to another in terms of budgeting. And one of the suggestions which they throw up as a possible solution would be for cost judges to do the, the budgeting. The difficulty of that, of course, is that um, the cost judge is not going to be giving case management directions. But what do you think about that as a, as a, as a suggestion? Because it would obviously have the practical advantage of reducing disparity and um, making the, the ordinary judges feel quite happy because they didn't have to do it anymore. Yeah, I think, I think we'd need quite a lot more cost judges if that were, if that yeah. were a suggestion. But, um, I'm not sure that um, the SCCA would be particularly pleased at the idea of doing all the budgeting of all the um, high court cases in London. But I mean, you know, if they can do it, fine. But as you say, it doesn't really help with the interplay. Um, I, I, think what, I think what would be better, and this perhaps leads us on almost to guideline hourly rates as well, is um, to give them parameters so there's the suggestion of training of them in cost budgeting. I'm not sure how much training has, has gone on. Um, and I, again, I don't mean that critically. I just don't know as a matter of fact whether they've had any training. Um, but I think it's easier because it's very easy to forget one's training. Um, I think it might be easier if they were given guidance on brackets, you know, like PSLA awards, effectively that sort of, you know, for this type of case we would expect to see for witness statements between you know, 20,000, 50,000. And I know that'd have to be quite lengthy and variable and the like. I just think that would be much easier for, um, for, for, for non-cost judges to you know, ensure consistency or some level of consistency across the board. Mm. But wouldn't everyone then pitch their claims at the top end of whatever bracket it was that you gave 20 type of case? They probably would, but then, you know, you yeah. get that at PSLA as well, don't you? So, you know, I mean, and then the, the, the judge will say, well, actually, I don't think it's that different. And they'll know, you know, they'll know in truth what it's like. And I expect quite a lot of um, deals could be done. Yeah. I mean, if, the, if before we leave cost budgeting, if we're about to, the only other couple of observations I'd, I'd make is that, um, I mean, I think from a policy point of view, the fact that the courts are so obviously under-resourced and stretched Adds to the adds to the burden and the and and the irritation over uh, uh, over the time these things take up, which is unfortunate. Um, but there's nothing that we can do about it. If the CJC really has got the skids under this, then I think the one thing that I would like to see retained, and I fear won't be, is that I think it's been a very positive move to view the categorisation of costs by way of phases, um, which, which, which starts with budgeting, but now, of course, continues through to detailed assessment as well. Just because at any stage of the resolution of disputes about costs, whether it's by negotiation or mediation or detailed assessment or summary assessment, I think that, that the, the, the discussion is more coherent and you can cut through it faster when you're talking about uh, what work is being done as opposed to being either either blinded to it by endless document schedules that you know that that, that aren't that that that, that aren't uh, divided by topic of some sort or other. Um, and I'd like to see that I'd like to see that retained. Um, I think those those law firms that I know of that still rely very much on the recovery of interparties cost for their income. <laughs> 
you know, are quite disciplined about how they record their time that way and have seen the benefits and have seen that most people have got used to it, it's okay. You know, the people who don't, or to whom cost is normally a footnote, okay, they probably don't do that so much. But it, it's still a, um, it's still something that I sense might fall away a little bit, might fall into, into, into disrepair. That would be a shame. Example being how they've scrapped the pilot for putting um, summary assessment schedules into that form. Probably clunky forms, you know, I'd accept that. But the principle actually, I, I, I think, is, is probably a good one, and I wouldn't like to see that go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have a much better insight into that than I do. Um, the, I mean, the advantage of a global figure, it would be obviously it would save time and allows you to shift between phases and it may be accord more closely with proportionality, you could mm. say, which looks at the case as a whole. But I entirely understand that it, you know, working from the basis that most cases settle, which obviously, obviously they do, mm. then you know, part of the benefit isn't having the phases so that you can then resolve those issues more promptly on, a, on an assessment. Exactly. And I find that does happen. You know, and you know, the fact that the senior coach judge is quite keen on the idea of saying, if okay, I, I, I can see a good reason to you know exceed this budget or reduce this budget, but I'll do it by that amount as opposed to throwing it away and starting it again and going line by line. It's, a, it's just, a, just a better way of doing things. Well, yeah. Can we move on then to, um, to guideline hourly rates? Um, where the really there are two questions thrown up one is what is the purpose of, of guideline hourly rates, and the other one, which I think is probably the one they're really seeking uh, views on, is. How on earth do you update them, given the problems they've had over the last sort of fifteen years, really, in, yeah. in doing exactly that? Yeah. So um, there's a suggestion almost of, that we should be getting rid of our guideline hourly rates, and I, I won't dwell on this too long because I think on this call we're all um, all quite in favour of guideline hourly rates because otherwise, you know, where do you, where do you start um, up and down the country? Uh, how does a judge even you know have have any idea what the hourly rate should be? Um, so, so I agree. I mean, I think they have to be kept. I actually think they're very helpful. Um, the, the, there's a couple of court appeal decisions worth mentioning because I don't know if this has been across people's radar, but there's a Samsung and LG case in the court of appeal and it was followed up by just yesterday, actually, I saw a report on, uh, on a case called Athena Capital Fund, which was effectively approving it. And they were saying that in London one cases, you really need to show something exception, you know, something specific to that case to take you outside and above the, the, the guideline rates. So they seem to be placing more weight on the guideline rates than the cost judges had done previously on assessment. So they, they are even given greater strength. Now, that may or may not be going too far. We can talk that needs to be. But in terms of updating, which I agree, Jeremy, has to be the, the question, um, we had a farcical situation over the last 10 years where um, they didn't want to grasp the nettle and update them because they felt they didn't have enough data from the profession. Um, now, now, personally, that can either be resolved by making it compulsory on the profession to keep and supply information on that, obviously anonymized, et cetera. But I don't see why, if they view that information as necessary to update guideline rates that solicitors can't be required to keep it or if they think that the SCCO and district judges have enough information of their own on it they can be required to keep it and there can be someone every time a bill comes in it can just be recorded somewhere and I know the court staff um, obviously are very overrun anyway um, but if there's a 
if the move to electronic bills, it may be that you can do it through an automated process um, whereby the rates are just uploaded. You may need some personal interest, but there may be a way that that can be achieved. But I, I, you know, I, I unless there's a big disparity between the either the SPPI or the CPI, so the inflation indices, and what is actually happening to solicitors' rates, um, I'm not sure why the fallback position can't just be that we increase with inflation. Um, you know, particularly the SPPI one, I think, is specifically for, includes the legal services industry as, as a factor in it. So I'm not sure why that can't just be the fallback approach if there's an inadequacy of information. Um, and it can be reviewed every three or four years just to check that there hasn't been a big divergence in reality and with the, the indices. But, but do you see a problem with that, Jeremy? Or not? No, I think it's, I, I would completely agree. Something has to be done. And just to say, well, we can't think of how to do it, so let's do nothing, is obviously the worst um, possible solution. But just picking up on, on the point you made earlier about you need some sort of guideline either rates, otherwise how on earth are these th things done? Um, I'm the only one on this call who is old enough to have been in practice before even the surveys that were done in the 1980s by local law societies were in force. And you went along to a hearing um, and the, uh, the cost judge or the district judge would look in his bottom drawer and have a little table, and it was always a he, I have to say, um, have a little table of the rates that he allowed. And if you got on really well with him um, and you were very, very lucky, he would sometimes share um, the contents of the table with you. And then you go back and tell everyone, you know, this guy, that's what gets allowed this kind of case. And that's a ludicrous situation. Mm. Yeah. It's effectively having guideline rates, but unpublished. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And completely personal to and, and personal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think we're fans, aren't we? Uh, uh, yes, I mean, I, I think I think we are. Um, I, I, I think that um, it will be impermissible to um, let it slide in the same way that it, it slid between 2010 and 2021, um, particularly if, as appears likely, we're heading into a sustained period of um, of, of heavy inflation. Um, and I think over the years, as there have been more sophisticated indices of, uh, of inflation, you know, sector-based, um, that that is something that, that ought, ought to follow. Um, I, I mean, I do I have some sympathy for um, the view that they were still there basically to help judges doing summary assessment, where... Um, I mean, and the, the, the factors that used to, used to take up a lot of our time on, on detailed assessment, arguing about, um, okay, that's the expense rate, but what about care and conduct, you know, depending upon the circumstances of the case, that would make the gross rate quite elastic, actually, in a lot of cases. But some of those, some of the, you know, the, it, that shouldn't really be lost, um, it, it, it seems to me, entirely. Um, but the parameters ought to be narrower than, I, mean, I, I can't understand why you would have a London one rate and go 50% above it, pretty much for anything. Something, the London one rate's wrong then, if that's the case. 
Yeah, and, and for, I mean, for summary assessment, you might expect a little less flexibility than the detailed assessment. I mean, as, as the rules say, they are only a starting point for detailed assessment. So there is a, a room in the, the more complex cases. Indeed. To, Obviously, to not if I'm it. justifying costs, it's the London one rate is, you know, should be flexible because... Uh, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay, I think we've, we've, we've done that one. Um, right, the other... Um, favorite uh, of um, the master of the roles, digital justice, and the impact really on costs of the extension of online justice and portals and uh, pre-action protocols, that kind of thing. What do we think about that, George? So, I mean, it looks like we're, we're definitely going that way, digitalization, um, that seems inevitable. I'm actually a fan of digitalization it's itself, I think it can be used. <laughs> we have to ensure appropriate safeguards for vulnerable users, but um, in theory, it should work. I also think in theory, it should lead to um, cost savings, if it works properly. Guys, do, do, do you think the pandemic made a big difference to the <laughs> for digital, cost, uh, digital uh, justice? So I'm coughing. Sorry, 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 <laughs> Andy? <laughs> well, um, I don't do it, right? so therefore um, I shouldn't be allowed to comment on this, uh, it, it, uh, you know, because we, we don't, we've never been called upon to assist anybody with any form of portal work, um, uh, for example, I, I can completely understand why it would be the way forward. Um, I when we, we've rehearsed it many, many times, but, you know, it, although it's in bad taste to think about positives coming out of the pandemic, the acceleration in terms of things like electronic bundles and the ability to have hearings remotely that uh, are, are effective um, uh, is, a, is, a, is a huge leap forward. And uh, we, we, would have, we wouldn't have been anywhere near the position we are now uh, had it not been for, the, uh, for being forced down that road by a very unfortunate circumstances but let's take the benefits when they're when they're when they're evident yeah i just thought it'd be at least 10 10 years Absolutely. everything was moving so slowly yeah yes. yeah. yeah um and, and i thought you've got your I've got my voice back yeah um bad news for everyone silly. but the um I, I do think it should make um cost more predictable as well, if it works right. I think it, digitization and fixed costs do go hand in hand. Um, I do think there's greater justification for fixed costs when you can do things using a set format and procedure. Uh, what I think would be necessary though, is to um, have forms that can be completed as far as possible, rather than have great variety of what should be submitted in those projects. So um, the European small claims procedure, for example, has, quite bespoke forms to be completed. And I'm not saying it's worked particularly well, but I'm just saying that in lower value cases, I think there should be a way that people can use it more easily in a, um, in a precedent format 
because otherwise you, you could get great disparity in, in, in what's achieved. Mm. One, one of the issues that's um, raised by the consultation is the um, distinction between contentious and non-contentious business and informed consent, on which George has a little difficulty because he's uh, counsel in the Belsner case, which was recently um, adjourned. Um, is there anything you can safely say, George, without uh, giving away um, the strength of your case? Exactly, that we'll win. Um, the, um, <laughs> the, or, what I would say is that um, the Solicitors Act itself is a strange beast. Um, and I think for those of us who do solicitor client assessments, <coughs> there are a few areas which generate lots of disputes. So be that the things we're looking at in Belsner, be that interim statute bills and the like. <coughs> it, it is an area where the problem needs to be looked at. Um, the contentious, non-contentious business distinction, I, I, don't, I don't think is, is the cause of any of the problems with the Solicitors Act, but others may disagree. Um, and that's one of the issues which I can't really go into in any, any detail. Um, but 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 there is the Solicitors Act itself that has given rise to some issues and, and lots of there's quite a lot of satellite litigation about it at the moment, as you'll be aware of anyway. I'm just gonna go on to mute again so I can clear my throat. Yes. I mean one of the things that seems to be required, I mean this is the civil justice um, council who normally have to do with CPR and things like that. Um, one of the major reforms that seems to be required is the Solicitors Act itself, which is obviously outside their jurisdiction. Their recommendation from them might might help, um, but it, that might be the solution to um, some of the undoubted complexities, I think, on any view. Um, how important the consequences of these complexities are is perhaps uh, moot, but there are undoubtedly some incredible complexities in the Solicitors Act, which um, may not be entirely appropriate. Uh, in the modern age. There is also a fundamental question about the extent to which solicitor's fees should be linked to recovery. So solicitor-owned client fees are linked to recovery from opponents. Um, and that, you know, that has played um, through all the reports on costs through the years, you know, Wolf, uh, Wolf Reforms, Jackson's reports, etc. Um, and uh, it is an interesting debate. Again, I, you know, I can't say too much more on that, but it is an interesting debate about how far solicitors should be able to charge more and how much more than it's recovered from the other side. Um, and, and, you know, what needs to be said, what doesn't need to be said and the like. So it, it is a, it's an interesting area um, which, you know, we may get clarity from Belsner or it may, you know, that, you know, they could well say in Pels now things need to be looked at. Mm. Yeah. But also given the um, fluidity, if you like, of the um, professional bodies that can do with what used to be traditionally solicitors' work, um, the heavy regulation of solicitors' costs compared with, say, those of accountants um, is certainly raises a question which needs to be to be looked at in that context. It seems to me that, that, that a, a review of the Solicitors Act would be a very useful um, step at this stage. Oh. But as you say, I mean, is uh, one of the one of the issues is 
uh, is the added protection that solicitors, that clients of solicitors have compared to clients of accountants or any other service provider, frankly. Um, mm. I mean, most solicitors probably feel that they're, they're very heavily regulated already, mm. um, particularly in terms of remuneration um, compared to, you know, their, you know, their friends in other professions. So there is a, there is an issue about how far you interfere with the contractual relationship between, you know, freely contracting parties mm. as well that needs to be grappled Particularly because I mean, the, the origin of the Solicitors Act, and I can't remember the first one, it's, it's before eight, the 1843 Act, um, but the regulation of solicitors' bills goes back a long way when, um, obviously, unlike today, um, the profession was regarded with considerable... Um, a raised eyebrow, if you like, by certainly the judges back in those days, um, as, as a particular body that needed to be, you know, carefully checked. And that really will be unfair to say that that was true today when you compare solicitors with other mm. professionals doing similar work. Yes, I mean, well, yes, exactly. Why not dentists? <laughs> Have you had a bad experience, Andy? But, you know, no, no, no. You know, I disagree with your dentist. I think they no, look great. I bet it cost me. Well, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, like who wants to dispute with their dentist? You know, otherwise, you, you know, you, you'd fall asleep wondering whether you're going to go back in the next time and they're going to behave like Laurence Olivier in Marathon Mayors. Want to keep but, on their side, though. But actually, you're supposed to the same position you know if you've got a long-running piece of litigation i mentioned it yes. and and you get in your first couple of bills and you think oh it's a bit steep mm. the last thing you really want to do is is confront the solicitor head on as you're required to do in, depending on the type of bill mm. um in order to protect your position yes yes um i, I think that's I, I i i mean i'm 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 very comfortable about um bringing solicitors acts terminology up to date and getting rid of things that shouldn't be uh, arcane obstacles to having costs assessed, you know, in terms of uh, clarity over what interim bills are and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and th that should be, that should all be easier. Um, but in terms of the, I wonder how many people we're talking about. I think there's probably quite a lot of people in the middle who are between the people who are detached from costs because of, CFA lights or so and so, and people that are very sophisticated purchases of legal services and are going into these these decisions very very much with their eyes open, um, and and it's just that it's just that middle ground. It's probably larger than we see, you know, um, and, and they're the people that phone us up and say, oh, "I never had any idea about any of that," you know. Always until right, the, the case didn't quite work out as we hoped. Yeah. Um, Particularly until recently. That whole group of CFAs, um, not CFA lights, but the other CFA uh, cases, were the one area that well, there's not an issue here, there's no problem. But, but in fact, it's now become the most litigious area of the lot in client terms. I think that the abolition of recovery of additional liabilities has massively increased solicitor client disputes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, there was always going to be that tension of, you know, of, of rowing back from. The notion that had probably gone too far, you know, which was, uh, you know, litigation is not my risk. I can de-risk it. Um, and, uh, and, and that's something that was always, um, uh, was, was always a dangerous principle, I think. Yeah. Um, the last topic in the, um, 
in the consultation paper is the consequences of the extension of fixed recoverable costs. I think there's a bit of an add-on, really, because there's not a huge amount in it. But have you got any thoughts on that, George? I think the main the main things are um, it makes budgeting redundant, obviously, for those cases. Mm. They need it, so that may factor into whether you keep budgeting or limit it. In certain cases, mm. I think that it also makes we'll have a little difference for. Um, the guideline hour rates point, I mean, we think they should still exist. I mean, it, it does render them redundant in those cases because if you have fixed costs, they're normally not a multiple of, you know, hours spent times rate, they're just a fixed number. So again, rates will be less important there, but I certainly don't think that means they should be abandoned. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, and as I said, you know, there's a, there's a question about the interplay between fixed costs and solicitor client costs, which, which may need to be they need to be considered. Um, so, but yeah, I, 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 they're not asking for views on um, whether you should have fixed no. recoverable costs. It's just it's the impact on, on, on the other areas. So I think I, I'm not, I think they tagged it on as a kind of just in case anyone has any ideas, as you say, Jeremy. I, I think it has some impacts as we, we talked about, but I don't think they're, they're particularly major saving respect to budgeting. They, they did ask whether there should be some form of cost capping for specialist areas. Um, I, in terms of fixed recoverable cost, I think my own view for that is that if a case is certain enough to be able to impose a cap on it, cost cap, then it should be certain enough to have fixed recoverable costs as well. I'm not sure what the, the, the benefits of cost capping are over fixed recoverable costs, save that it has a bit more flexibility because you're only imposing a top level cap rather than saying what should be recoverable. But in those circumstances, you would then have an assessment anyway so you don't really get the benefits of certainty or the benefits of, 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 of fixing recoverable costs, et cetera. So I'm not sure that capping necessarily is the answer um, here, but I don't know whether you, whether you have other views on, on that. Well, I mean, I think my view is the, you know, there's enough complications in um, cost law anyway. Why add in another specialist category with yet another regime? Seems um, too much. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Anyway, I think um, that's about it. Um, thank you very much, George. It's been a very interesting um, introduction to this consultation paper. As I said earlier, if you do want to um, submit a response, you can do so till the 30th of September. All the details are on the CJC website. Uh, and um, apart from thanking George in the meantime, uh, can we just wish you on behalf of Practico uh, a very good summer? Yes. Well, as no, as no, we've already had it. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. That's really good. Thank you very much, George, and and, and for the benefit of our viewer, um, the we'll be continuing to have these discussions until the end of the uh, uh, the consultation period in in various forms, including I, I think we're looking to plan a, um, a a live event now that they're potentially um, logistically possible again um, in uh, in September sometime. So um, uh, there will be more of this and different views and different angles as the conversation carries on. So thanks a lot, George. Nice to see you again. Well, thanks for having me. With you. Fisherman's Brains, I recommend. For the Sorry? <laughs> Fisherman's Brains for the... <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so, thank you very much.